Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and welcome to the Comfort's Corner Edition, where we bring you the inside story and what's happening in and around the transit industry as we respond to and recover from the COVID-19 crisis. And today we've got an action-packed show for you with lots of newsmaker uh, interviews and headline news for you. We'll dig right into it uh, right away. We're going to be bringing you uh, an interview with Kevin Desmond, the CEO of TransLink, who talks to us about how they are now recovering from uh, the COVID-19 crisis. As you know, they had announced layoffs of up to 1,500 employees and the British Columbia provincial government came through with some funding while they're waiting for the federal government's response. He'll tell us all about that and really a really interesting look at how they're going to work on their budget for next year. Uh, I think you'll want to listen to that if for no other reason, because he's got a great approach of a scalable capital budget for next year, uh, since things are kind of still up in the air, obviously, on how ridership will come back. We're going to cover a bunch of headline news stories, and then we have uh, a new addition. Elia, uh, one of our hosts, one of our guests on one of my recent podcasts, Elia Carey talks about kind of a messaging moment for transit agencies. And then I do a longer interview uh, with Mike Bismeyer, who has been our king of kindness on this show, talking about how even during a time of crisis, we need to maintain our kindness uh, toward others. And so we'll be talking all about that, plus a look at our book, The Future of Public Transportation, and we'll read a portion of the chapter from Phil Verster, CEO of uh, Metrolinks. We want to start off with um, uh, big news uh, on the CEO front, very sad news this last week. Uh, out of uh, San Diego as Paul Jablonski, the longtime CEO there, passed away suddenly on May 10th. Uh, very, a lot of folks are sending their condolences online. It was a very unexpected thing. And uh, our heartfelt condolences to the agency, to his family. Paul has been over 40 years in the transit industry, very active in APTA. San Diego's Metropolitan Transit System Board appointed Sharon Cooney to take over as CEO uh, for the agency. And she is the first woman CEO in the history of the organization. She said, I'm honored that the board expressed confidence in me. I think the board also understands that Mr. Jablonski assembled one of the best staffs in the entire country. I'm lucky to have been mentored by one of the nation's most respected transit leaders and to have a group of professionals that are absolutely dedicated to advancing public transit in San Diego. We're all ready to take on the challenges of today and into the future. And she has held many top level positions at MTS during her 15 year career there. Uh, including deputy CEO. And so she, um, her appointment comes on the heels of the board's unanimous approval of their FY 2021 budget, a $346 million spending plan that is relying on COVID-19 federal stimulus funds to restore service and balance the budget. It also provides a $1,000 essential worker stipend for all employees. Looking across the industry, uh, one of our bellwether systems is TriMet in Portland, Oregon, and ridership is picking up again for TriMet. I'm very excited to see that. According to the transit agency, riders took more than 631,000 trips last week by bus and by max, and that's 15,000 trips more than the week before. It's a slow return to normal. Uh, they were seeing 2 million trips per week uh, before the coronavirus outbreak, but still uh, they're seeing an uptick finally in ridership, and that's big news. Um, in other news, we come out here to the East Coast to a system near where I'm from, and that is WMATA, the Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, talking about their budget. They have balanced their budget with Federal CARES Act funding. The Washington Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, known as WMATA, is using more than $767 million in federal relief funding from the Coronavirus Aid Relief Economic Securities Act, CARES, to close out the current fiscal year with a balanced budget. 
This comes as WMATA faces an unprecedented drop in fare revenue due to the pandemic crisis response, according to an article in Mass Transit Magazine this week. For the coming fiscal year, the CARES Act funding will also enable WMATA to cover increased expenses driven by enhanced safety measures and manage the risk of lower than anticipated jurisdictional subsidies due to the COVID constrained budgets. My buddy and CEO, Paul Wiedefeld says, we are fortunate to have supporting jurisdictions and a congressional delegation that both understand and advocate for Metro's role in the region's mobility and economy, especially during a crisis. He said, thanks to CARES relief funding, we've been able to keep people working and continue to move essential workers as safely as possible during an unprecedented crisis. The board passed a $2 billion FY21 operating budget after months of public input that supported service improvements and fair discounts. And uh, the new budget defers those services and fair initiatives and instead funding WMATA's three-phase recovery plan. Wiedefeld said there's so many variables here that any one of these could put our ability to deliver service uh, at risk. And he said, we, while we are deeply grateful to Congress for their support, we will need additional help to get the nation's capital moving again. So for the fiscal year beginning July 1st, the new budget proposal anticipates CARES relief funding will replace, get this, $438 million in additional lost revenue, while WMATA ramps up gradually, aligned with requirements from the region's governors and the mayor. And uh, the proposed proposal also provides $45 million in cost cuts through management actions such as deferred supplies purchasing, a hiring freeze, elimination of vacancies to take some pressure off funding jurisdictions with declining tax revenues. And um, so that's what's happening. Uh, in, in Washington, D.C. area, their $1.82 billion capital program looks like it'll be largely unchanged. What's a look at how some folks are responding to this? Another really uh, interesting approach that I'm seeing across the world is the launching of microtransit services to respond to uh, this COVID-19 crisis. And down in Lubbock, Texas, it's exactly what they're doing. The name of their service is called City Bus, and they're launching a new microtransit service this week According to a news release from the city, the new service is featuring personalized shuttle service as a means of public transportation that works similar to ride sharing services like Uber or Lyft, except trips are co-mingled. And um, they are allowing same day bookings uh, made through app or by calling a phone. And uh, the city manager, Jared Atkinson, has told the Lubbock City Council that the new service is being funded by a $9.6 million grant from the federal government. And while their fixed route bus service has been cut back, uh, due to COVID-19 pandemic, this new uh, pilot program uh, is, um, is, a, is a way for folks to take a, a new look at the services it provides and for the service itself to adapt and change to the demand, according to Chris Mandrell, general manager at CityBus. Mandrell said it's a public transportation service, so the attempt is for every ride to be shared, and it's intended to supplement the fixed route service. It's a demand response type system. It'll be going to be done obviously by the phone app or by calling in the schedule. Uh, the city will be broken up into four micro transit zones and uh, they've been exploring this for a while and now they're gonna launch it this week. And again, it's a response to COVID-19 to supplement. It's for the general public, kind of like uh, Ride KC Freedom that our friend Robbie Mackinnon did in Kansas City. And it's another way that cities and transit agencies are responding to things. Uh, interesting news out of Las Vegas, the Development of Elon Musk's underground transportation system has achieved a major milestone. The boring machine there in Vegas has broken through the second tunnel, marking the completion of tunnel excavation at the Las Vegas Convention Center. And uh, you, you may recall this is a, a big project that's been going on for a while. 
Um, and this uh, breaking through of the underground uh, tunnel by the boring company um, is now signals that it is more than 80% complete. And the West Hall expansion and convention center loop are scheduled to debut to the public in January of 2021, just a few months from now, and are part of the destination's investment in bringing groundbreaking transportation solutions to the meeting and conventions industry. Steve Hill, who's CEO of the convention, uh, the Las Vegas uh, Convention Association, uh, Visitors Association there said, this milestone not only helps usher in a future of transportation in Las Vegas, but it signals the destination's ability to push through during trying times and continue to meet the evolving needs of our visitors. And uh, he says, this is Las Vegas continues to break through boundaries. We look forward to offering this first of its kind transportation solution to our convention attendees. This first commercial endeavor from Musk Company is a $52.5 million project, and it will allow convention attendees to be transported across the 200-acre campus under two, in under two minutes, free of charge in all electric Tesla vehicles. Construction is already underway on all three passenger stations for the system. And um, they've uh, moved now, they've moved from board approval to completing the excavation of both tunnels, 4,500-foot journeys in less than a year. The underground transportation systems, three passenger stations connect the existing 3.2 million square foot convention center to the $980 million West Hall expansion. So very interesting that things are continuing to move forward and develop even in the time of COVID crisis. Now stay tuned for our wonderful interviews we've got coming up with Kevin Desmond. I do want to tell you about one more thing coming up this week if you're interested in, in being a part of it. And that is uh, I'll be... Um, I'll be on a podcast coming up, our big webinar coming up this week. We already have over 800 people registered. It's the Metro Magazine's webinar, and I'll be discussing the future of public transportation in a post-COVID world. You can register at Metro Magazine. It's a free event. It'll be held this Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, uh, and I'll be the, the only host, the only guest on the show, and I'll be talking about... Um, you know, all the things we talk about on this show, what I've drawn in from interviewing dozens and dozens of transit executives over the last few weeks, what I think the future looks like, and also a look at the book, The Future of Public Transportation, and some of the future-proof items coming out of the book. That's this Friday, May 22nd, a free webinar hosted by Metro Magazine. Join the almost 1,000 people who have already registered for this important event. Thank you so much for being with us today, and let me know what you think about our program as we continue to bring you insightful stories about what's happening in and around the transit industry. For today, I'm Paul Comfort. Stay tuned for our Newsmaker interview with Kevin Desmond, CEO of TransLink. Thanks for being with us today on Transit Unplugged, the Comforts Corner version. I'm excited today on our Newsmaker Hotline to have Kevin Desmond, who is the CEO of TransLink in British Columbia, a good friend of mine, and one of the leading lights in our industry. His transit system was awarded uh, APTA's Large System of the Year Award this last year. Kevin, thanks for being with us today on Transit Unplugged. My pleasure. Good morning, Paul. Hey. So uh, you're, I guess you're calling from, we're talking both of us from our houses. Is that where you're at? Looks like it. I'm working from home, growing the beard, and my, my hair's long until uh, I can get a haircut. But yeah, yeah. the uh, work from home thing. Yeah, my wife just texted me right before this and said, all right, I got you a haircut for, ten, for uh, Saturday at 11. I said, oh, good, I need it. We're, uh, we're all going to end up looking like uh, we did in our teens before this is over. Um, so tell us, Kevin, uh, from your perspective, what is, what's the current status of things? This, is, this show is being aired, uh, you know, the week of um, 
May 20th it'll air. And so tell us the current status of things. What's happening there with your transit agency right now? Well, actually, as we're recording this, today is, is May 19th, and it, it happens to be, in a sense, the official reopening day uh, in British Columbia. So almost two weeks ago, um, John Horgan, who's the premier of the, the province, uh, announced that with the flattening of the COVID curve here, um, uh, they announced plans and, and a process for slowly in a staged manner reopening the economy. It happened a little sooner uh, than, than we had been predicting or, or thought would happen, but I think that's a, um, a good tribute to our public health officials managing the, uh, the crisis. As, as a matter of fact, on a per capita basis, the rate of infection in British Columbia is, is, is quite low and it's, um, um, uh, it rivals that, I think, of some of the countries worldwide that are uh, generally cited as, as managing the crisis well. So we've been fortunate uh, from that standpoint uh, in British Columbia. So with that, in a certain sense, we at TransLink as the transit agency are really moving from the acute crisis phase to now our own recovery phase. We've been frustrated, to be honest with you, that unlike in the United States, we still do not have a, a transit emergency a financing plan in place. You know, our colleagues in the U.S. now well over a month ago in the first um, uh, $2 trillion uh, congressional um, plan got the $25 billion um, uh, financing. So our, our, our colleagues in the U.S., at least these, these last number of weeks, they haven't had to focus as much on really crisis management and worrying um, where the money's coming. They could be focused on, on operating and perhaps the recovery phase. We here in, in Canada, unfortunately, had to still be very much focused on how to manage um, our, our, our uh, vastly reduced um, revenues. And in fact, we'd announced uh, layoffs of about 1,500 um, people, plus um, really significant service cuts with the reopening of the economy. However, uh, we in the province came to the conclusion that it would be very, very bad timing to uh, be dramatically uh, cutting for a long period of time service just as the economy is reopening. So, uh, we've avoided the layoffs and the service cuts, and um, we have a little bit of a pledge from the province to uh, backstop us, at least on the uh, money that we otherwise would have saved from the um, operating cuts. For the people here in the U.S., maybe you can just, uh, if they haven't heard, explain that in, in Canada, the federal government primarily has been responsible for capital, and I guess they're not quite ready to cross the Rubicon and get into the operating dollar world? Yeah, that's right. Um, in Canada, they don't have the... Um, kind of the, the, the mixture um, and diversity of funding programs through, through the FTA, whether it's the formula grant program or, or other uh, major new starts type um, programs. In Canada, um, only recently has there been very significant capital only uh, funding and exactly the, the federal government seems at this point reluctant to cross that Rubicon, and I, I think they see it as a provincial or municipal responsibility. Also, almost all transit systems in uh, Canada are in a sense a function of uh, municipal government. TransLink is unique. It's a little bit more like separate transit authorities in the U.S., so we don't have a, a municipal or a provincial government um, direct uh, link, so we're kind of on our own, and that's made our, our financial situation uh, that much more problematic. But that said, you know, our colleagues in in Toronto, they're facing the exact same kind of financial deficit. And most of the city of Toronto's financial deficits are from the Toronto Transit Commission. So one way or the other, we really believe that um, there is a very strong policy nexus for the federal government and the provinces 
uh, to be uh, supporting public transit in this country. They don't want to see transit systems in the major metropolitan regions or even in smaller cities uh, becoming diminished. And as we end this year and going into next year, uh, actually have to face um, permanent service cuts and war cancellation of significant capital projects. So we're, we're, we, we want to find a way to avoid that as we now are in this recovery phase and as we begin to um, uh, amp up the conversations with um, federal and, and provincial governments on the so-called rebuilding phase when stimulus dollars may come. Now, one of the things we're trying to encourage uh, from the federal government is the color of money may not be as important, the extent to which if the federal government were interested in providing aid through capital and they don't want to cross that Rubicon, I liked your phrase, Paul, mm -hmm. there are ways they can do that can still help because we debt finance much of our capital. So if, if they were to increase federal share of projects, um, reducing the local share, that means less debt financing costs and that can be plowed right back into making right. up operating deficits. That's it. So are you, are you proposing that to the government? Oh, yeah. Is QDOT and all the guys here? Oh yes. Yeah, no, that, that's been part of the conversations we've been having quietly uh, with, the, with anyone that will listen uh, <laughs> with, with the federal government and you know, how we're, we're uh, communicating with our provincial government here in British Columbia. Well, congratulations on, on getting uh, you know, some money, it sounds like a little bit, from the provincial government and helping you so you don't have to do those layoffs. That's, that's great news for you and for the passengers because it won't be such a big ramp up. And, and is that what you're starting to expect now? Let's, let's turn and look a little bit to the recovery. Uh, you mentioned that this week after Victoria Day, you start, you're expecting to see some things starting to open up? Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the interesting um, conundrum that we face, same as everybody else in our, in our business, is how do you start thinking of welcoming back your transit customers? Our ridership's down 83% here, not unusual, of course, in the North American or worldwide environment. How do you start welcoming them back, rebuilding that trust and confidence that it's safe for me to take a bus or yeah. a train, right. but at the same time, either how do you manage or you create the mitigations for social distancing. So right now our buses are still operating in effect at 30% of normal scheduled capacity as we uh, block off every other seat on the buses and we don't allow uh, standees. So we don't wanna have these images of crowding. But as more and more people begin to circulate as the economy opens up, and more and more people here in the very you know, positive transit environment that we had prior to COVID in, in the Vancouver region, how do you find ways to welcome them back? They feel confident, but you don't have overcrowded buses and SkyTrains, and how do you mitigate for that? So we've been working uh, with provincial officials and very shortly we'll be going out and communicating uh, to the public just how we're gonna do that. We believe face masks have to be part of that uh, solution. They're not mandated here. Uh, in British Columbia, but we want to find a way to um, working with health authorities uh, to message to the general public that, you know, probably masks are, are, are part of at least the near term environment on buses and trains. I think that can that can increase a little bit of the comfort of people being on on trains and buses that might start to appear overcrowded. That said, we do expect ridership to come back uh, quite slowly. Quite slowly. Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that, that's especially I think on commuter services. Uh, is the expectation I'm hearing from people all over North America, uh, the ones that have been hit the, hit the worst and the ones that were doing the best at the end of 2019, you know, with 5% increases are now going to be the slowest to recover. It's, uh, it's a shame. Yeah. Well, you know, I, 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 you know we, we sort of have this conversation internally a lot 
Uh, I wouldn't call it a debate at this point. I, I, I'm actually fairly bullish on the return of ridership in the Vancouver region. I, I do believe it's going to take time. But given the land uses, the density of land uses, the, the fact that so many of people in our region were being attracted to, to taking transit, and there's not an elaborate highway system. Hmm. Eventually, as the world returns to normal, whatever that new normal is going to be, that people are going to want to return to public transit. They're still not going to want to get stuck in traffic driving. Now, the question, of course, becomes, I'm sure you've had this conversation with, uh, with, with your industry colleagues and in your podcast, you know, that so-called new normal, how many businesses will allow significant portions of their employees to work from home? How will they right. stagger um, the days that people actually come to work? So how many of, you know, formal commuters won't actually be commuting, um, uh, at least in the near term, even after there is a vaccine or other uh, medical advances um, uh, in society. We don't know that. Um, but that said, I, you know, I think at the end of the day, our region will still have an exceptionally good and effective transit system and people will want to come back to transit. But the key is how long that will take and how much damage that will do uh, to our finances over the next, you know, 18 to 24 months. Yeah. So, um, uh, I have heard from some folks that uh, the financial implications here in the U.S., that, that COVID funding they got, for those who are funded like with sales tax, like, uh, you know, my buddy Phil, our, our mutual friend, Phil uh, Washington in L.A., you know, the, the this federal influx of dollars may last them through the end of this fiscal year, or the end of the year. For others who are who don't have sales tax and so they're not hit as hard, the money's going to last them a lot longer. Just give us real quickly as we head out of this, kind of what is what is your funding matrix look like, and has it been hurt beyond just uh, Fairbox? Has it also been on? The, are you sales tax funded, or how else are you funded there? So I, I feel for our colleagues uh, in the U.S. and I was speaking to my colleague in Seattle mm -hmm. uh, the other day about uh, their prospects going into next year because sales tax is their funding source. We have three primary funding sources for translink fares. Uh, at the end of last year, our fare box recovery was 58%. Wow. Number, number two is gas tax. Um, so it's, that's a little unusual. Which is down uh, eight, to 18 and a half cents per, per liter. Uh, gas tax uh, was reduced by about 60%. So as fewer people drive, less gas tax. goes back to that, that issue we just talked about before. If more and more people are working from home, less uh, vehicles kilometer uh, driven, less people um, um, buying gas and therefore getting the gas tax. And then and that's about 25% of our revenue. And then about a third of our revenue comes from property tax, which has not been um, hit. Right. So we are unusually reliant on, in effect, two consumption taxes of uh, fare box um, and gas tax. And we believe fare box with our very high fare box recovery will not bounce back that quickly. Uh, we actually put off a fare increase that was supposed to take effect July 1st. Who knows when that will happen? So our, our revenue is going to be challenged. We're, we're estimating at the end of this year um, a roughly $600 million deficit uh, and a few hundred million dollars more next year. And that assumes there's not a major second wave of infection, that it will be a fairly short-term um, impact and not a particularly uh, steep recession um, here. So our bounce back, um, it just remains to be seen. It probably won't be that much different um, than uh, transit agencies in the U.S. that are reliant on, on sales tax. It just 
Is it a V-shaped uh, uh, curve? I don't think anyone expects that anymore. Is it a U-shape? And when does that U start uh, the upswing? That's when you start seeing sales tax recover. That's when you start seeing in, from in our environment, uh, gas tax recover. But um, somewhat different um, specifics, but the, the overall, it's still gonna be a big challenge as we get through this year. What does 2021 look like for all of us? Can we maintain service? Can we maintain our capital projects and our priorities in our capital projects? Last question is budget related. When does your budget cycle start and where are you at in that process? And what's the, what you just mentioned, FY 2021, what's all that looking like? Or do you have enough info to, to put it all together now or? Yeah, that's a great question, Paul. Our, our budget's a calendar year. We just launched last week what I call TL21, TransLink 21. How do we focus on getting ourselves internally and our board in a position by the fall to evaluate and adopt a meaningful and balanced budget uh, for next year in an environment of incredible uncertainty. You know, I was at King County Metro in the Great Recession in 2008, 2009, as we were doing our budgeting. Um, while it was, there was a certain amount of uncertainty, it's nothing like that. There is right. not a game plan for this. No one knows what this is like, at least for, even it, as much as the Great Recession was a steep, recession, we had game plans for, for recessions and how you manage recessions. This one, we don't know. We don't know if there'll be a second wave in the fall. We don't know if there'll be a bad second wave um, in the winter. We don't know when a vaccine is going to create it. We don't know how much of our world will actually be permanently changed from this. So our own budgeting process but that I call TL21, um, we're reevaluating our corporate priorities. And then we're gonna create scalable buckets of our projects and programs. And we have, to, we have to reprioritize. What are the new priorities? And what are lower priorities now? And how do we shift the funding? So if we've got a pretty good financial outlook, then those buckets are scalable to you know, pass a budget for a more favorable outcome. If our, if our budget uh, forecast is pretty poor, then we're gonna to have to make cuts. We're going to have to decide what capital projects um, fall by the wayside. You know, at least from my perspective, not state of good repair. I don't want to defer maintenance. I don't want to pass on a problem to future leaders of TransLink and future taxpayers. So, you know, you have your major um, 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 uh, capital projects, which are otherwise viewed as um, job creating projects, stimulus projects. Would you remove those? That's tough. Those are funded by senior governments. So what else is in your capital program? What other fun things that you're doing, the fun things are general, the things that you do to support ridership growth. How many of those projects might have to fall by the wayside? So we have a lot of work to do, but our plan is to start now, uh, spend uh, some time methodically over the summer, developing new financial models, create a scalable um, business plan for our board. So in the fall, where we'll have more information, maybe a little bit more certainty over our prospects, uh, we can develop a smart budget. Well, that's really, that's, I haven't heard anybody else say that, Kevin. That's a really good approach. Um, and, and thank you for sharing that with us. I think that'll be helpful to a lot of our listeners of transit executives around the world uh, as a great way to approach capital budgeting and operating budgeting going forward. Thanks for being with us today on, on this episode. And uh, we look forward to talking to you uh, next time. consultant who loves to help transit organizations innovate their communication strategies to build ridership and secure broader community support. 
we're starting to emerge from the first difficult and shocking months of the coronavirus pandemic. And we all know how important it is to communicate that transit vehicles, stops, and stations are clean and safe to use again. We're already seeing cleanliness as a theme in transit ads and media. But I want to propose an addition to those more traditional forms of communications, kind of like a 3D expansion on message delivery. Why not let riders see anti-infection cleaning going on right in front of them as a part of daily vehicle and facility use? This would involve not just regular cleaning like sweeping and mopping, but putting staff in appropriate protective wear onto vehicles and in facilities where they can perform a sort of ongoing cleanliness theater, as David Zipper from the Harvard Kennedy School of Government calls it. That presence, agency staff whose clear mandate it is to fight infection throughout the day, could provide the right-before-your-eyes factor that other communications channels lack. I also want to suggest that you view cleanliness theater as a communications task, not an operations function. That shift in thinking could allow you to deploy basically what's a street marketing team around cleanliness, one of the most important concepts of our time. You could get new insights that inform future marketing and service delivery by doing this. Your cleanliness street marketing team can give you direct feedback from riders and you can include more formal marketing data collection like writer surveys and social media data analytics. That's one messaging idea I had as transit emerges into fuller operations in a time of COVID-19. If you'd like to talk about that or other transit communications, look me up on LinkedIn. My first name is spelled E-L-E-A, last name C-A-R-E-Y. with us today on Transit Unplugged, the Comforts Corner edition. And today I'm excited to have on our line Mike Bismeyer. Mike has been providing us Mike's Minute on kindness over the last uh, few episodes of the show. And he and I are good friends and we had talked about the importance during this time of recovery, managing through and now recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic that you know we maintain kindness to each other during this time. We're not able to kind of meet in person and and uh, there's a lot of tension and stress in the world as a result of this and sickness. And uh, I thought it was a great addition to the show and wanted to have a few minutes today to talk to Mike. So, Mike, thanks for being a guest on today's program. Hey, Paul, thanks for, uh, thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate you uh, continuing to lead us with the information. And uh, also, before we get anywhere, I also want to thank the frontline workers uh, that continue to um, work hard every day to, to selflessly uh, make it better for us. So uh, truly appreciate it. So thanks for having me. So um, before we get started, I wanted to ask you some about your background, and, and but but tell us what you do, like in your role in the public transportation industry now. Sure. Yeah, I'm a regional sales director uh, for Canada and the Pacific Northwest for Proterra. Um, of course, uh, we sell a battery electric bus. Um, so I have been with Proterra uh, about a just over a year, and prior to that, uh, I was in the transportation sort of uh, space for 12 and a half years with uh, the Sayon Safelite entity. Um, so been been around for uh, a little while, by by no means as long as uh, a lot of the good folks out there. But uh, I really really like being uh, in this uh, transit world. So thank you. Yep. And you're based out of British Columbia, right, in Canada? I am. I live about an hour east of uh, Vancouver, a town called Abbotsford, British Columbia, right across the uh, Sumas, Washington border. So we're a border town uh, of uh, the privilege of looking out every day across the uh, the line to Mount Baker. So, yeah. 
Oh, wow. That's interesting. So tell us about, I mean, uh, ever since I've met you, you've been big on kindness. And I know you've spoken at a number of groups like CUDA, the young, the young leaders group there and others about the importance of kindness. Tell us about what your thoughts are on that and, and why, uh, you know, how you got started and kind of this crusade you're on. Sure, and, and I really appreciate the, you asking. And, and yeah, there's really a couple of reasons I became sort of a self-proclaimed um, kindness advocate uh, sort of outside of my, my normal role, but obviously in our day-to-day lives, it's, it's very important. And, you know, the two reasons really, you know, I came from a family where I have, a, you know, my dad's my best friend to this day, uh, probably the first and best mentor I ever had with little tidbits. Of course, uh, as a kid growing up, you didn't listen to them until they made sense much later. But, uh, you know, my dad, uh, my dad's a recovered alcoholic who just, um, you know, took his, uh, who celebrated his 40th year of sobriety this past January. So, you know, he changed his life when I was about 10 years old. And um, it was really a, a, an incredible journey for all of us because my dad, you know, he made a pact from the day he um, got sober and well to, you know, every year continue to give back and to help others who were less fortunate. And, you know, it was an amazing education for my sister and I because, you know, we have had every year for Christmas dinner and all through the year, you know, my dad is always trying to help someone else who, who needs a better opportunity. And, um, you know, we never, we, we grew up in a home where we just never looked at anybody, you know, any um, sort of ethnicity, both diversity, uh, economically, uh, different than anyone else. Everyone was just a guest at our table. And, and I think it was a great education. Um, and just seeing how my dad is, is, you know, for always, you know, efforting and trying to give back. And, and of course, my mom uh, was incredibly resilient, keeping the family together and, and joining my dad on the journey. And my parents have been married over 50 years. So a great example. And, you know, my dad still is trying to help someone every day, you know, he's 76 and still participates, uh, you know, in his local chapter of of uh, AA and helping out in the community, trying to give back to um, shelters and homes. And, and we do a couple fundraisers uh, each year together. So that was one of the, the main reasons, you know, I just saw, uh, you know, my dad was coined a lot of the phrases that I use, you know, he always sort of said to us both that we, you know, we should go through life with, with remembering that we're all sort of one bad decision from being the story that no one wants to hear. And, and it's always important to listen to people because it might be all they have. So, uh, you know, those little tidbits like that over the years, you know, and then the other part of the, the reason I became passionate is, and, and part of my story that a lot of people don't know is, you know, I was bullied pretty much as a kid. You know, I, when, I was, when I was a young kid, I was a, a chunky little guy, and my, my wonderful mom used to keep telling me that I just hadn't hit my, my growth spurt. But I, was, um, I had a couple of years in school where, you know, I was bullied pretty relentlessly, and I, and I actually didn't want to go to school anymore. And, you know, but it was a random act of kindness that sort of changed my perspective. And, and sort of what happened is, you know, I used to have this, um, you know, one particular individual that, you know, every morning when I show up at the bus stop, he would, you know, take my lunch in front of the other kids or whatever and throw in the garbage can and say I didn't need to eat, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And um, anyway, this went on for a long time. And, you know, unbeknownst to me, uh, um, another kid who I was not friends with at all had sort of witnessed this. And one day when I was getting on the, on the school bus and sort of walking back to try and find a seat, um, you know, this, this random uh, kid who was a great ahead of me said, Hey, you know, you can sit with me. And, you know, I was obviously a little shaken from the morning ritual at the bus stop. And I sat down and when, when the bus started to move, he just sort of looked at me and he said, um, Hey, you know, don't worry, I got your back. And I didn't know what he was talking about. And, you know, he, he, um, he opened his knapsack and he brought an extra lunch. And, uh, you know, that, that changed my perspective for a long, long time because he had witnessed what was going on, knew it wasn't right. Didn't make a scene in front of anybody else, but sort of approached me. And, uh, you know, he had, he had brought an extra lunch because he saw mine was getting thrown every way every day. And, you know, all of a sudden something triggered in me that changed my perspective on, hey, there's a way around this without, you know, violence or, or without, um, you know, doing something extreme. 
and yeah. it gave me an idea to to sort of change what I was doing every day. And I and Paul, you you probably remember back in the day when we went to school, we had pencil cases, which a lot of people might not realize. And what I started to do was hide my good lunch, uh, my sandwich in my pencil case. And I'd start to bring things my mom didn't want in the fridge every day, put that in the bag and I'd let the bully throw that away. And after a while, you know, it just didn't even bother me anymore. Um, and he eventually moved on because he wasn't getting a reaction from me. But, um, you know, that's something that's always stuck with me. And at, at my last company, I had an opportunity to be part of the founding uh, members that formed a group called United Zealand Boeing, which is an organization that's still going strong, very proud of it. Uh, became the national spokesperson for that. Had a wonderful opportunity to interact with kids. We we created a foundation where we had grants that we gave away every year uh, to to schools and kids that wrote uh, about kindness and anti-bullying initiatives in their schools. And we we would have a panel that would judge on these ideas. And I'd go down and present the checks. But really good opportunity to interact with you know large schools and speak in front of the kids and and you know talk to them about bullying and kindness. And um, so yeah, and it just it's just grown from there. And obviously there's always the parlay back to the workplace and mentorship and leadership as well. Very good. And so let's have one last little discussion about how can we in this age of kind of recovering from COVID as public transportation providers, I know that so many of our companies, you know, companies like TransDev and other private contractors as well as transit agencies are involved in really kindness initiatives such as, you know, uh, handing, you know, meals on wheels and other types of things. But uh, as an individual, what is your thoughts about, uh, as we wrap this up, about how we can show kindness in the workplace? Yeah, and I, I think it's uh, amazingly simple, and I think it's you're, you're right. We've been inspired every day by organizations and individuals that are stepping up and, and going above and beyond. Just this morning, on, on, I was watching this morning with uh, Kelly and, and um, uh, Ryan this morning with my wife, and they had a, a WMATA bus driver on there that was the hero of the day. So you're right. It's around us every day. And I think it's, it's very important in the workplace to, you know, a simple act of kindness is sometimes even just saying hello, acknowledging people, understanding that we're, we're all getting through life with, with certain things behind us. Um, and I think every, if you look around us, and that's one of the things that I learned very early on, and I, I practice it daily, and I think kind, kindness daily is, is, is a ritual to get into, right? To think positive instead of negative when, you know, we're sort of led by media sometimes. But I think every time we look around, there's every workspace, every opportunity we're in, there's an opportunity to be kind or to do something different. And it can be as simple as holding a door, you know, helping someone carry something. Um, you know, I was at the grocery store just yesterday with my wife and I uh, helped someone get something into their car that was seemed to be struggling. And, and my wife just laughs because she, she hates going anywhere with me because I'm, I'm, she calls me, I'm always distracted by something other, <laughs> you know, but uh, in the workplaces, it's very important. You know, there was a, a Forbes study, I think just, just over a year, year and a half ago, where they talked about uh, workplace and, and people that were leaving and turnover and, you know, 12% of only 12% of those people surveyed actually left for money. Um, you know, a lot of them left because they didn't like the environment. And when they, when they talked to those people, I think the 80% that left for other things, 53% of those people said they were unhappy just with the lack of recognition or a simple thanks never being done at work anymore. And I think that's, that's how easy and how important it is, right? Saying thank you. Um, is really the, the, the foundation we, we should believe. You know, I always say kindness is cool, it's free, we should give it away. Um, and mentorship, you know, mentorship, leadership, I, I think we've seen some amazing leaders. I think APTA has done a tremendous job. I think CUDA has been amazing with being in front of the people and speaking. People like yourselves, there's, there's podcasts every day. I think we've truly seen in a very short time how many incredible people we have and how well-educated we're becoming on something we knew nothing about, if you talk about COVID and the pandemic. But I think that's also what mentorship and leadership is, right? You know, a lot of companies want to try and appoint a mentor. You can't do that, right? Mentors are people that just have values and do things that others want to emulate. And I think kindness is something we all want to emulate. It's contagious. 
Um, and so I just say, you know, try and be kind first uh, and always try and be a little kinder than necessary and life will be a lot better. Thank you. Thank you, Mike Bismar. Thanks for uh, keeping our minds on the important aspects of, uh, of how our personal interactions with others can impact their day, their life, and their work. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us today on Transit Unplugged, the Comforts Corner Edition. And today we've reached a portion of our program where we do a reading from my best-selling book, The Future of Public Transportation. Uh, the book reached number one status on Amazon earlier this year uh, for transportation books and remains a bestseller there uh, where we've included the input of over 40 transit experts and futurists as they take us into the future of public transportation. This book was published uh, just as the coronavirus crisis was hitting and much of the book is future proof where the input they've given us uh, continues uh, to be valid and um, it's revelatory to me to see how that even after the impact of COVID-19, uh, how much of, of the direction we were headed in is still where we need to go and actually even more of it uh, in that direction. Uh, I've recently published an article in Metro Magazine where he talked about the five long-term implications of the coronavirus on transit. And uh, one of them is, you know, the death of the fare box. That was happening before COVID-19. Um, and it's, uh, we talk about that in the book and now it's even more relevant. Well. One of the um, great leaders of our industry, Phil Verster, who is president and CEO of Metrolinx in Toronto, Canada, wrote a chapter for my book. Uh, it's great to have both ends of Canada represented on today's show, where Kevin Desmond, the CEO of TransLink in the West in British Columbia, uh, was our newsmaker interview. And uh, we're also gonna cover uh, a portion of the show now with Phil Verster, who's head of Metrolinx in Toronto on the East Coast of Canada. You probably are aware that uh, the way transit works in Canada is, uh, it's largely headed through uh, the, and funded, as we talked about in our interview with Kevin, uh, from like British Columbia and Ontario. It's the provinces, which in my mind is the Canadian version of states. And so Phil is head of um, Metrolinx, which is the state agency, so to speak, or the provincial agency that oversees transportation in Ontario, which includes Toronto. And so he directly operates the commuter services, Go Transit, which is Go Bus, Go commuter train and US, UP Express, UP Express, which is for the airport. But they're also Toronto's regional transit planner, almost like a metropolitan planning organization here in the US and responsible for their, some massive capital investment projects are overseeing the GO expansion with four consortiums of $30 billion and also the Toronto subway expansion. One other little interesting tidbit about Metrolinx is that they're the largest free provider of parking, free parking in North America with over 70,000 free parking spots across all their facilities. Phil wrote a chapter called The Four Musts, um, which talks about four things he thinks that we must do in our transit agencies. Let me read to you from chapter 11, page 110 of our book, The Future of Public Transportation. He says, hereby my thoughts on the four must travel uh, transit organizations must espouse of safety, business culture, customer, and innovation. Number one, every transit organization must have an intense, passionate, and systematic core business philosophy of safety first. Number two, transit organizations must operate and adopt the behaviors of commercial businesses in everything they do and must not become departments or agencies or bureaucracies. Amen to that, brother. And number three, transit teams must focus on customer benefits and must innovate in order to excel at satisfying customers. And number four, a positive focus on responsibly and effectively adopting innovation must be used to reinvent operations 
increase customer satisfaction and revenue while reducing costs. Again, more true now than ever as we try to attract passengers back on to the transit system. That's just the summary he puts on page 110. There's several more pages in his chapter where he talks in depth about those, uh, the four musts. You can get a copy of the book easily online. Uh, it's on Amazon for digital download or um, our, a softback copy can be mailed to you. And it's also on um, Barnes and Noble. So uh, Phil's also going to be on a uh, podcast with me coming or a webinar coming up with me in June. I'll tell you more about that uh, as we get closer to it. And for UITP is doing a global webinar focused. Uh, a lot of the folks who listen will be in the Australia, New Zealand area, but it'll be a worldwide webinar talking about the future of public transportation and what's coming. Hey, thanks for being with us today on this episode of Transit Unplugged as we bring you and brought you uh, headline news, some two great new portions of the program with Mike and Elia's comments, um, a good newsmaker interview, and a look at our book, The Future of Public Transportation. I also want to let you know I'm working on a children's book, a children's picture book. That's right. Uh, it basically comes off the concept of the future of public transportation, but it's the past, present, and future of public transportation for children. And it's illustrated. I've got the illustrator working on it right now. We cover you know, each phase of public transportation over the last 200 years, each new innovation from you know, the Tom Thumb uh, Railroad back in the 1800s all the way through Hyperloop and beyond. And there's pictures on each page of a different type of vehicle, you know, whether it's a cable car in San Francisco you know, or, um, or like I said, up to Hyperloop and beyond and lots of different phases in between. And, it's really a good book, I think, for those of us who work in the public transportation industry to give to our children or grandchildren. I can't wait to give my grandchildren a copy of it um, so they can kind of see, you know, what you do in the business. Each page talks a little bit. There's fun facts on there. Or did you know, uh, you know, how like, for instance, you know, that a cable car doesn't have the engine in the vehicle. It's at the end of the street and there's, it just runs the cable and the car clamps onto the cable. Maybe you don't even know that. Uh, so, but it's all kinds of interesting little tidbits like that about how public transportation has really helped our society uh, and cities and, and our countries grow and prosper and, um, and be able to move you know, the masses of people that are uh, necessary for commerce to take place and for people to get you know, places they need like shopping and visit schools and everything. So it's gonna be a fun book. Uh, it'll probably be called um, coming out later uh, this summer or early fall. And uh, it'll be called something like, you know, the past, present, and future of public transportation. We're working on the title right now. And uh, it's, a, it's an exciting picture, cartoon-style book for young people, maybe ages 5 through 13 or 14. Be a fun addition, hopefully, to your children's uh, reading so they understand a little bit more about our industry. Thanks again for being with us. Stay safe out there. <music>